welcome to Criminal Gines, a comedic true crime watch-along podcast where we watch Criminal Minds, all 15 seasons, and discuss the true crime that can be linked, however indirectly, to the episode. We're your hosts, Stacey Johnson and Veronica Shea, and this week we're joined by Kristen Green in discussing Season 2, Episode 3, The Perfect Storm. Are we all done coughing? <laughs> perfect. Yeah, until I take another deep breath. What a perfect way to start. <laughs> all right, so we're talking about Season 2, Episode 3, The Perfect Storm. Kristen, thanks for joining us again. No problem. Be happy to be here. We promised not to give you another arsonist, so you're welcome. <laughs> Instead, we gave you the most sadistic assholes on the planet. Yeah, went from incredibly boring with only like two two things to say to I, I don't know what to say. So, <laughs> <laughs> so here it. we go. <laughs> um, okay, so we're in Florida. A mom and dad receive a DVD of their daughter being tortured and raped with a letter telling them she's having a great time. And the dad has a heart attack and dies. What Mm -hmm. a way to start an episode. We find out there's been a series of rapes and murders. Girls have been abducted from parking lots or while they were out running. And we establish that there's more than one killer based on the video. Our team profiles that these are sexual sadistic killers and there will be a dominant personality and a submissive personality. Mm -hmm. And they use the term, which we have talked about previously, that I cannot say for la adieu. Well, is that right, Stace? No, oh, I just like hearing you try. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> what does that mean? It's a, a delusion that affects two people, but it mostly oh, mm-hmm. is about two people who barely bring the worst out of each other. So like, mm-hmm. and very much used with Norris Bittaker. Um, mm-hmm. As this, the title, The Perfect Storm is also something always said in relation to these two men. Okay. Mm-hmm. So our team goes to Jacksonville. They start looking at victimology. They're all young blondes. They look at the dump sites. They're out in the open and they start talking to the families. The mom of our most recent victim asks if she can get her daughter's ring back. It's like this pearl diamond ring thing that her husband had just given her daughter and she would like it back because her entire family is dead now. But her body did not have any jewelry on it. So they realize he must also be taking trophies and potentially giving them as gifts. They mentioned the Green River Killer did. BTK also did this. And it's a way for the killers, when they see the person wearing it, to become aroused by kind of reliving it. Um, super gross. So they... Okay. Okay? Sorry. They had the hiccups. Listen, I'm in a weird space. <laughs> Um, Garcia finds more potential victims uh, that were earlier and had a little bit different MO and also had DNA. These victims were manually strangled and JJ realizes that the unsubs are sending the DVDs only to the moms of the victims. So they're like further victimizing the mothers. Many of the victims' cars are also missing, we discover, and have yet to be recovered. And they're asking, why are they hiding the cars but not the victims, right? They want their victims out and proud. Look what we're doing. Meanwhile, a man in a panel van asks Tiffany, a young blonde woman out jogging for directions, and she's pulled into the side of it by a second person and kidnapped. If someone started yelling at me on the side of the road, this is where I just keep on running. Yeah, I would not stop. No, she was too nice. Yeah, no, no, no. They were yelling at her? 
Yeah, they were yelling at they're her. Like, hey, they were like, hey. hey, we need to, how do you get to the freeway? And she runs over. She's like, oh, let me help you. I'll help you get directions. Oh. In a van. They were in a van yelling at her. And she was like, beep, 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 beep. I mean, I know this is fictional at this point, but like, come on. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that van will come into play in our case. So our team is delivering their profile at the precinct in Jacksonville when they find out about Tiffany, our newest victim. She is in a different jurisdiction an hour away. Garcia, meanwhile, is able to trace parts of the victim's cars to a used auto garage in Georgia, and they trace the sales of those parts to Joey who is an ex-con who lives in Jacksonville. They go to Joey's house to question him, and he pulls out a gun and commits suicide by cop. And they talk to his dad, who's in a wheelchair, and he tells them that he works in a garage with other ex-cons, and they find long blonde hair as, like, trace evidence in his room. So obviously, Joey is involved. They decide that Joey is most likely the submissive partner because a dominant personality would come out shooting and go down in a blaze of glory, and they rule out the father as being part of the killing team. Because he's in a wheelchair. Because he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> they look up uh, Tony's cellmate. Oh, no. They look up Joey's cellmate, Tony. Tony is also out of prison about three years ago when this killing started. And they were both released before the killing started. So they go to Tony's house and they speak with his wife, Amber, who's quite white trash. She tells them that when Joey and Tony get together, she's scared of what can happen. So they have her go someplace safe while they wait for Tony to come home so they can question him. And she leaves and Morgan waits for Tony. Meanwhile, back at the station, the wife, Amber, comes to find Gideon and she has a freshly blackened eye. And she says that after they all left and she left, she went to go find Tony and told him that the FBI was looking for him because that's what I would do if I had an abusive husband. And he hit her. She got spooked. So... She's wearing the pearl and diamond ring from one of the victims and says that Tony gave it to her as a gift after he won money playing cards. Gross, gross, gross. So Tony comes home and Morgan is like walking behind him and Tony realizes it and gives him kind of the brush off and then like hits Morgan in the back and Morgan's like, oh no, you didn't and beats him up, kicks his ass, handcuffs him, very hot, go Morgan. It was a moment. It was a good moment. We all had to take a minute. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they bring him into the house and they find DV tapes of the tortures and rapes. So they bring him to the station to interrogate him and are trying to find Tiffany, right? Because where is Tiffany? Uh, yeah, well, she- so he lawyers up. So then they decide to use the wife and have her go in to talk to him. Again, he has lawyered up, but okay. She finally gets him to confess, and he confesses to taking the girls to a storage unit that Joey's dad has the key to. They go to this unit, but there's no victim, and it doesn't look anything like the tapes, so obviously he lied. They're reviewing the tape of Tony and Amber, and they realize that like the behavior's totally off. She's not scared of him. She's initiating eye contact. She is the dominant personality in their relationship. Garcia calls and has been able to isolate a voice in the videos, and it's Amber. She is involved. Tony is covering for her, and now she's in the wind. She walked out of the police station. Where is Amber? Where is Amber? Garcia discovers that when Amber was a teenager, she had been raped by her father and brother, but that Amber's mom protected the men. So she hates moms. Women. And moms. Yeah, she's just a disturbed individual at this point. Mm -hmm. Gideon questions Tony. A lawyer has yet to show up. 
and he's telling Tony. Yeah, because Tony straight up asked for one. Yeah. I was just like, people, that's when you shut it down and you get him the lawyer. Yeah. So he's telling, you know, Tony, she's done this with other men. He's not special. Those first couple girls with the DNA, that was her ex-boyfriend. Also, Gideon's wearing like a surveillance earpiece, but with no wiring attached. Like, I thought that was an interesting prop choice. (laughs) I don't know how they thought like they were going to communicate, but by magic, they do. (laughs) So he finally breaks tony and tony tells them that tiffany is in this shed in the woods so they go to the woods to find her and amber's beating her up they arrest amber they save tiffany and they actually find amber's ex-boyfriend's bones like under the shed or on the floor or something anyway tiffany's saved yay amber's arrested good we you know torture and rape not fun moral of the story Why'd she kill her ex-boyfriend? They don't really get into that. I I would guess into it. I guess because they they either they became no longer of use to her, so she got rid of them in some way. Hmm. Just doesn't really match all the other murders. I know. Maybe he tried to be the dominant person, and she was like, "No." Or she he was just like, "I can't do this anymore. This is boring." Yeah, (laughs) she's just bored. Boy. Oh my god, I would have murdered so many people if the criteria was... Could you murdered. imagine? You get bored all the time. <laughs> so and you can't hide it, too. I can always tell when you're bored. Yeah. You're just like... <laughs> to be clear, I wasn't bored just now. I was listening intently. You just made the face that I... No, I swear to God. A lot of times she fidgets. <laughs> She'll start pulling stuff apart. Right, and I didn't because I was listening. Thank you very much. Okay, so the similarities between this... <laughs> Hold on, wait, wait. So And the actual toolbox killers are that there's a van similar like rape and torture mm-hmm. and then like the dominant submissive thing dominant submissive and recordings so that part's interesting to me because i was reading into this like dominant submissive relationship between the actual toolbox Let's killers rate shamar and then get into oh, you it do that first oh yeah okay. or does it pertain to the like episode is it like separate from your research oh it's just talking oh Okay, well, let's rate Shamar, who had a great moment <laughs> of beating someone up. Gimme, gimme more. We all got the photo? Yeah. yeah. It's ingrained in my memory. It's my most favorite one I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Same. He looks like a hot professor, like a hot, cool professor. Yes. Oh. I'm giving him, I'm going first, I'm giving him a five. Okay. Five helpings. I want, uh, if I could, I would give him a seven. Yeah, it's a five for me. He's a psychology professor. He's got the lines in his forehead. Like, he's thinking critically, deeply, mm-hmm. you know? But he's still got the, like, the loose t-shirt underneath, so he's cool. He's not too serious. He's a cool professor. Yeah, I'm into that photo. I like it. Great. I'm also giving him a five, but a lot of it <gasps> is because he's wearing army green for a lot of the episode, which I think is a very good color <laughs> on him. And you get a bunch of his sweat stains, like, between his pecs and between his shoulder blades. And I'm like, hey, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing Ooh. Well, perfect score. Perfect, perfect score. score. Has perfect he ever gotten a perfect score, score before? Shamar Moore. He has, I think, one or two oh, okay. times. Mm-hmm. You guys Definitely have to show me what, what other perfect scores he's gotten. Yeah, we should do a compilation. Oh, you should. Best and worst Shamar. <sighs> that sounds like a lot more work for the editor. <laughs> <laughs> Who do we think the editor is? <laughs> <laughs> The one who's not excited about it. Unless take a guess. Unless Stacey, you want to scroll through and tell me which episodes and then I'll pull. Done. Um, Okay, so yeah, Kristen, talk to us about you're really into the toolbox killers. 
by Indu meaning it is ingrained in my brain because it is one of the most horrifying things I've ever right. read about. So yeah, yeah. What do you want me to say? You want me to go I back? No. Okay. So you were talking the- about. Let's start with finishing your thought about yeah, the dominant. Yeah. So it sounds like the episode really hit hard on like the dominant submissive mm-hmm. thing. But there's a lot of talk about how they don't think that's necessarily true between the toolbox killers. And because they say that Bitteker, they sort of painted him as like the brains and then Mm -hmm. Norris, they painted as like the broad, like he was a stupid big guy and he was the rapist. And well, they both were rapists, but Mm -hmm. Norris was a rapist before the murders. And then Bitteker was sort of always a sadist. He hadn't murdered before, but he had stabbed somebody before. Anyway, so those are kind of the lights that they were painted in. But... When they go back and actually look at the evidence, Norris participates just as actively as Bitteker does in the torturings of, mm-hmm. of these women and murders of these women. And one of the pieces they point to of Norris not necessarily being the submissive is the last murder victim. He, with a sledgehammer, this is what I mean by ingrained in my brain, he hit her in the elbow 25 times with a sledgehammer. <sighs> while asking her to scream while he was doing it. So they point to that as that's not necessarily submissive behavior. That is actively like sadistic. You were involved. You were just mm-hmm. as yeah. culpable and into it as Bitteker was. Yeah. So Which is like also, it, oh, we should say, and, and they do say in the episode, just because they're a submissive doesn't mean they are not active participants and just mm-hmm. as guilty. Yeah. And I think in the case of Roy Norris and Lawrence Bitteker, the dominant quote-unquote is the planner and the reason why they did not get caught for so long is because Bitteker was smart and Mm. planned it and then Roy Norris went along quote-unquote with the plan Mm -hmm. because he wanted to rape and torture people and so he didn't get caught. Bitteker was stupid as fuck because that's how they got caught was because of him. Dude yeah okay so yeah start us at the beginning who are these people? To the boys, the toolbox killer, not to be confused with the toy box killer, David oh. Parker Rick. Oh. But Mr. Bitter. He's worse. He's oh. worse. Yeah, Chris. Oh my mm-hmm. God. Seriously? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's hard to okay. I, well, I wanna you have to tell me about that after. I know. He he'll come up. We'll we'll yeah. get to him in later seasons. So Lawrence Sigmund. Bitteker was born in 1940, and Roy Lewis Norris was born in 1948. I like the uh, the three names. I know yeah, they all they formal. Have, they're very formal. I, I just want to make sure that you guys know who these people are. <laughs> Not to be confused with, with the toy box killer with David Parker Ray, or with Lawrence <laughs> David Bitteker, oh. Lawrence Sigmund. Bitteker. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so these guys were known for kidnapping, rape, torture, and the murder of five teenage girls in Southern California. And I find this fact very uh, interesting is that it was only over a five-month period. So all of this happened pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I also appreciate that our buddy, Mr. John Edward Douglas, described this as the, the three most. Names. I know, I can't help it now. now I'm, I was like, now who's I'm John stuck. Edward Douglas? And I was like, oh, John, John Edward Douglas. <laughs> Mr. John Douglas, our buddy at the, at the FBI. He described it as the most disturbing criminal profile that he has ever had to 
like create. So I thought that that was extremely interesting that this man who had does this for a living was still even like shook by this. So let's get into, I always love to talk about their early life and how they got to where they got. Mr. Bideker here was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He, I thought it was funny because he was described as an unwanted child of a couple who chose not to have children, meaning AK, he was a surprise baby. So he was placed into an orphanage by his birth mother and was adopted pretty early on as an infant. His adoptive father worked in the aviation industry, which required the family to move around a ton. Now, Bideker actually started his crime spree at a pretty early age because he was arrested for shoplifting at the age of 12 and it obtained like a a small like criminal record over the next couple of years after like furthering further getting cut further getting caught how do you say i don't know how i'm trying to say that anyways he got caught for the same offense he kept doing stealing okay yeah, yeah. shoplifting <laughs> he kept doing stealing <laughs> he kept doing stealing <laughs> i like that um he would later go on to say that the criminal theft-related offenses committed through his adolescence had been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he received from his parents. Okay. He was reported to have an IQ of 138, but he was bored in school. He considered it to be tedious, and he dropped out of high school in 1957. And at this point in his childhood, he and his adoptive parents were living in California. And within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit and run, and evading arrest. I was just going to say, for people listening who maybe don't know IQ scores, 138 is high. Thank you. Um, Bundy had 136. Damn. So it's high, but it's not the highest of the serial mm-hmm. killers, but it, it is high. There That's we go. It. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that fun fact. Because I didn't, I don't really know what's high and low, and now I'm afraid to look at mine. Anyways, go on. So as long he, as you're not uh, like under a hundred, I think cool. like n- normal intelligence is is like ninety to one twenty. Okay, cool. Does that feel right? Uh, yeah, Google. Because I don't know. They're trying so, to get away from the IQ test anyway. Oh, why I excelled. Enough. <laughs> you want to keep it i did well so i think correct <laughs> now i need to you know okay. i'm gonna take an iq quick iq test after this to see what i'm at so <laughs> please tell me 121 to 130 is gifted okay 111 to 120 is above average intelligence mm-hmm. 90 to 110 is average intelligence right 80 to 89 is below average intelligence. And if you score under 80, you're not allowed to be questioned by police without someone there. I'm really stressed about this test I'm going to take after this now. (laughs) Maybe I just won't. Anyways, our friend Bittaker <laughs> was arrested for all of these offenses that he did when he was a youth and stayed at the California Youth Authority, CYA, until he was 18 years old. When he was released, he discovered that his adoptive parents had disowned him and moved to another state and he would never see them again. That's kind of where he was at. Let's yeah. go. He had a lot of holdups on love from his family and like no yeah family stuff true but usually i'd be like man fuck those parents but like good for them you know like he yeah. probably just put them through so much and they were just like fuck, fuck they're this like guy. fuck this yeah, yeah, yeah fuck exactly this guy. so they bounced yeah 
Yeah. Mr. Norris was born in Colorado and he was conceived. I love how they said this. He was conceived out of wedlock. Oh, the bastard. Oh, I <laughs> got to it first. Got to it first. <laughs> His parents, though, did end up marrying to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth at the time. So, you know, back in the what late 40s. time to be alive. Truly. <laughs> Norris's extended family lived within a short distance of his parents' home. His father had a few like real estate investments as well as his grandfather. So it seemed like he came from a pretty okay, well-to-do family. Not like super rich, but not super poor. His father did work in a scrapyard as well as his mother was a drug addicted housewife. So they had- I think a lot of housewives- were drug addicted. They were putting them on all Back kinds the of like right, the stimulants, right? Yeah, yes. they were putting them on the stuff so that they wouldn't eat, so they'd lose weight. They put them on yeah. Back in the anxiety meds 50s. to sleep. Yeah, they were just. Pill so I like wish crazy. I was a fifties housewife, but like with help, with a staff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because then you're just like hanging out so during the day on all of the meds and then you do like charity events at night while drinking yeah. like you're just galas all day drunk yes. and high at all times yes. you don't have to see your kids yeah no so <laughs> truly well norris he blames a lot of his he a lot of his childhood memories basically were interspersed with memories of like wrongful accusations while he was living with his biological parents of being neglected. So he lived with his parents occasionally throughout his childhood and adolescence, but he was also repeatedly placed into foster care throughout the state of Colorado. But they don't talk a lot about like why specifically. He states that a lot of his memories were because of like neglect while living with his parents. And so I just don't know a ton. They don't go into a ton about that. But he states like he never had sufficient amount of food or clothing. He also claimed sexual abuse from one of his foster families. So really just painting the picture of a, a kind of troubled childhood. While living with his birth parents while he was 16 years old, he visited the home of a female relative who was about 20 at the time and began speaking to her in a sexually suggestive manner. Sexually okay. suggestive manner. I just liked the way that they said that, so I wrote that down. She ordered him to leave the house, and she informed Norris's father, who basically threatened to beat him. Norris then stole his father's car and drove into the Rocky Mountains, where he attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into his, like an artery, what basically. What an awful way to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was apprehended, though, eventually and returned to live with his parents. Upon his return, though, his parents informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted and that they intended to divorce when both reached, like... The age. 18. Yeah. Exactly. Like the age that you could do Why something. don't you just divorce? <laughs> what? Just divorce? What? Uh, I know. <laughs> Look, this, again, this was like the 50s or this the mid-60s at this point. So that social stigma. Don't stay together for the kids. A year later, though, this is where it gets exciting. Norris dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego and, oh, no, I just had a realization. No, my dad wasn't old enough yet. 
I was thinking that both of your papas were in the Navy. Oh my yeah, my dad was also stationed in San Diego, but not at that time. And he wasn't in, anyways, moving him. So he was stationed in San Diego, and then he was deployed to go serve in the Vietnam War. Although he wasn't there during active combat, he was honorably discharged from the Navy after just one tour of duty. So wasn't that your dad's story, V? Yeah, my, so my dad went to Annapolis to avoid the draft. His draft number was very mm-hmm. low. So he <laughs> enrolled in Annapolis, the Naval Academy, mm-hmm. and graduated a officer and served uh, for five years in the Marines. But his junior year, they were doing their year at sea. They were dispatched to go pick up soldiers at Vietnam. So my father's Mm -hmm. Vietnam tour was three days on a beach (laughs) waiting for the soldiers to come so they could pick them up. And so we always joke that he uh, had the best time at Vietnam. They had like a barbecue and they watched bombs (laughs) going off like fireworks. He was like, yeah, my tour was real good. He was like, it was a good time. Um, but no, because yeah, he was he was a junior in college and yeah, during that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So meanwhile, during this time of Norris being in the military, Bitaker was being arrested again. He was convicted of theft right around the same time frame, so like mid to late sixties, and then he fled the scene. He was sentenced to five years, but then was released back again in in 1970. In 71, he was again arrested for burglary due to repeated parole violations. He was sentenced to serve about six months to 15 years in 1971. But three years later, he was released again. 1974, he was, this is the first time on record that he was arrested for assault with attempted to commit murder after he stabbed a supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. So, so, and it wasn't even like, why are you laughing? Because it's, it's like, it's like, okay, the idea. Okay. So let me just explain the supermarket employee observed him stealing a steak and then was like, this guy is stealing a steak and like followed him outside into the store's parking lot where he asked him if he had forgotten to pay. And the way that Bittaker responded was by stabbing him in Almost his chest. in the heart. Yeah. So yeah, no, he didn't forget. Mm. Don't question people. <laughs> right. Let them take their food and go. And go. Uh, right, right, exactly. And I, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say the crazy parts of these stories I thought about with both of them is how close they were to, right. well, one, Norris to fucking killing himself. Can you just be smart enough to like end your life, please? Correct. You know? And then the other one, if you had just murdered that man, this, this is terrible, but you would have been in jail forever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or at least a right. much longer time. Well, like, it's just so crazy to me that there's yeah. these pivotal moments where it was like so close yeah. to not Also, existing. if they had never met. Yeah. Like, right. I'm not saying that murders wouldn't have happened. I think Roy F- Norris for sure. Oh, really? Was I think a murderer. The other one. Well, Bittaker yeah. didn't kill anyone till he hooked up with Norris. But he's well, the one who stabby stabbed. Norris was not yeah, close, but Norris was raping. He was. You're right. Norris was rapey. You're right. But like those women would be alive today if they didn't meet. Regardless, they both were bad. They both probably would have killed. So Norris, right around the same time too. So again, late 60s, early 70s, he was getting into some shit too. This is right when he was starting to be charged with his first known sexual offenses. He was charged with rape. He assaulted with attempt to commit rape and just a, a... 
fudge ton of stuff. In 1970, he had attempted to like deceive a woman and like got into her home when she refused his attempts to like break into her house. She called the police who then arrested Norris and like basically got away without causing her any harm. So less than three months after that, he was diagnosed by military psychologists with schizoid personality disorder. Pop quiz. Can either of you tell me what that is? I mean, I know, but. Isn't it like a lesser form of schizophrenia? Yeah, so it's a disorder. It's disordered thinking processes. Um, Correct. So So you'll have a lot of like paranoia. You'll have a lot of breaks from reality, but it's not constant. It's like chewing at you is what I want to say. Yeah, I mean, you both are right. So it's basically characterized by a lack of interest in social relationships, a tendency to be more like introverted, solitary, sheltered, live a secretive, emotionless, like cold detached lifestyle essentially. I've really asked you not to describe me in on this podcast. I was just gonna say does this sound like anybody in the room? (laughs) I've asked you so many times not to talk about me like I'm not here. Oh boy. Uh, Moving on. Uh so (laughs) God. Okay, so on- I just like to say I have an interest in having <laughs> personal relationships with people. I am just <laughs> awkward and off-putting in person, so I tend <laughs> to stay at home. <laughs> you are. Okay, everything's fine. She's fine. <laughs> I'm um, only so- charming if I don't care about the social situation. <laughs> Truly. So, okay, while on bail for his offenses, he actually attacked Norris, attacked a female student. He had been stalking her on the grounds of San Diego State University, and it's reported that he repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he, like, repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as he knelt upon her back. Uh, As too. As, as one does. So shortly thereafter, he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He was committed to five years uh, of imprisonment in a state mental hospital where he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. He was released from this hospital in 1975 with five years probation, having finally been declared as an individual with no further danger to others. And then just three months, three months after his release, he approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant, offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, he parked his motorcycle, grabbed her by the scarf, twisted around her neck, and informed her he was going to rape her. He dragged her into a nearby bush, and then she basically did not resist. She let it happen. Although the rape was reported to police by her, they were initially unable to find Norris. However, eventually, one month later, the victim finally observed his motorcycle, noted the license plate number, which he immediately called police. Anyways, he was arrested for the rape about a year later, and then he was convicted and sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, where he met 
Bitteker. It's the beginning of a rom-com. That's what we call a meat cute. The worst kind of yeah. the cute. worst kind of meat cute. Yeah. So this was around 1977 when they finally became like loosely acquainted. This was about a year after Norris had arrived at the facility. So it's also reported that Bitteker's initial impression of Norris when he first arrived to CMC was that he was a savvy individual who largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs and dealt with like dealing contraband drugs. They eventually... Which is so funny because you hear like prosecutors talk about Norris. Yeah. And they're like, he was fucking dumb. Yeah. He was a dumb dumb who couldn't function without Bitteker telling him when to breathe and eat. Right. (laughs) Right. But clearly, clearly he was savvy enough to do the things that he needed to do in prison to survive. According to Norris, Bitteker had saved him from being attacked by some inmates on at least like two occasions. And a couple of years later, they'd finally become pretty close acquaintances, discovering that they both shared an interest in sexual violence and misogyny. As one does. As you do. That's how you make all your friends. Yeah. Oh, it's also Not you prob- specifically. I just mean people in general. Yeah. I don't... I, apparently, this is a Stacey digging into Veronica episode. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, it's probably worth noting that Bitteker was probably a target in prison because he's like... Five three five four. like he's a tiny little, tiny little, little guy. And Norris yeah. is big, right? Norris is big. He was always strong. Called the muscle. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So. so Norris also divulged to Bitteker that the biggest like stimulation for him was for seeing like scared young women, and this added to the primary reason like he had masked such a lengthy sexual offense record basically so he had that sort of feeling Bitteker, who wasn't necessarily known for any like sexual offenses prior to meeting norris did divulge to norris that if he ever did rape a woman at that point he would kill her so as not to leave a witness to the crime this all plays into when they were alone the pair would regularly discuss plans to assault and murder teenage girls after they were released. So this was something that was forming while they were together in prison. This shared fantasy evolved eventually into an elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year from the ages of 13 through 19. The pair vowed to each other to become reacquainted once they were released. I feel like... This is what I feel like about the two of them. They had these like deep, dark fantasies and secrets. And they had this mask on through society, right? And I do feel this way about when you meet genuine friends, right? When you can sort of take off the mask and you can be like, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And I feel like for those two, that was the moment. And unfortunately, their mask was trying to be members of society on some level or another, right? Not like completely divulging into their sick and twisted fantasies. But then when they found each other, they for once could actually take off the mask and live and talk about these things that they had wanted to do and thought about for, you know, years and years and years. So it's just like this really interesting meeting of individuals who finally could remove the mask, live the life that they wanted. But unfortunately for that life that they wanted to live was disgusting. Right. And that uh, comes into play too. Like the question of like, I think I can't remember. I think Veronica just said it like 
a few minutes ago. It might have been. It was one of you. I don't remember. Um, <laughs> it was one of you. Uh, if they had never met, would something yeah. like this have happened? Essentially, yeah. That that age old question. So upon their release, Bitteker specifically, he got out in 1978. He went to LA. He found work as a machinist. He actually earned quite a bit of money during this time. This was back in 78 and he was earning about a thousand bucks a week. That's good money. It's very good money. So despite, you know, kind of classifying himself as a loner, he befriended like several people in the neighborhood. He earned a reputation as being generous and helpful. He donated money to the Salvation Army. He would purchase large quantities of fast food and wine and hand that out to the homeless in downtown LA. Like he really kind of went for it. He was also really popular among local teenagers and later admitted the primary reason he always had beer and marijuana in his motel was that he wanted his home to be a popular place for teenagers to socialize. Yeah, he lived at a motel that was known to have like homeless teens basically yes, living there. And specifically. Yeah. Even though could he could either- afford really nice accommodations. Mm-hmm. Right. Did either of you guys watch the that Peacock documentary? Yeah. So that woman who lived at the motel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was a pregnant teen, Stace, who lived at the motel that he, quote unquote, befriended. I mean, it was all manipulation. He didn't give a fuck yeah. about her. But um, they made her testify. And it was really interesting in this documentary. And she was crying and she was talking about it. And she said, I begged them not to make me testify because they wanted her to be a character witness for Bitteker Because they knew that Bitteker had been nice to her. And they yeah. wanted her to talk about how he was nice to her. And you could tell she just felt so guilty and probably has been painted at this person who was defending Bitteker and she she just was begging them like please don't make me say on yeah. record that he right. was nice to me yeah and she's right. just crying in the documentary you yes. know she's like yeah 50 60 year old woman right and she was right. like he was always nice to me and if I needed anything he would always provide it for me he was someone I could count on and she just started crying and she's like I'm yep. so sorry like she said right. I hate to say that she yeah. said I hate to say that it- it's She's so, like, I know he is a terrible person and did so much damage, yeah. but uh, he was always nice to me. Right. It's Except so, for the gun incident. Yeah. It, it's so interesting when you start to think about people who, okay, extreme example, but like John Wayne Gacy was a upstanding member of society at, yeah. at points and, and they have these, these demons inside of them. And your specific experience with this individual is nice. And you have, yeah. and you're just like so shocked that this person could have done something like that. So, okay. yeah. Anyways, moving on. Well, um, but like also <laughs> with Bitteker, the criminologist that he finally talked to, who finally broke through, who's mm-hmm. in this documentary, was pregnant mm-hmm. too. And he was very attentive of that. So, I do think the pregnancy saved that young teen for yeah, sure. And I whether agree. or I not agree. the friendship was real, like probably not. I do think he, like many offenders do, have a mm-hmm. had a very soft space for innocent babies children you know like i wonder if it's because they that's the only time they can have empathy because it reminds him of them when they were young and innocent because a lot of them what happened to childhood right like i think so nice to me a lot of times they want to protect and that's also why you see so many child abusers being Mm -hmm. victimized in prison more than anyone else they 
barely make it out alive. You know, it's like yeah. you don't get to hurt children. So yeah. it it's an interesting dichotomy but that's what i find so fascinating is like these aren't any different than like your next door neighbor or you know anyone that Mm -hmm. you know their brains are not any different they just made different choices and it's Mm -hmm. like they are people at the end of the day yeah there was something in the documentary though speaking of like them being people that the um the forensic psychologist Mm -hmm. i think that's what she was at the end said of the documentary and she was talking about bitteker because she had she had befriended him Yes. To, she said to quote unquote get information from him, but I don't necessarily agree with that after watching this documentary. I think she uh-huh. enjoyed his friendship because she called him a friend. She said, Bitteker yeah. was my friend. I think I it started in one place and it ended in another. Perhaps. I, I don't know where it started, but um, so yes. Yeah, so she said, when he died, I was sad because he was my friend. And she was giving information to the families when she got it from him that the families ne- didn't necessarily know like where some of the bodies were located. Then it didn't find the bodies, but she said something in the end and she was like, some people say you shouldn't have empathy and compassion for Bitteker specifically. She's like, but I will have empathy and compassion for everybody, no matter who it is. And she was like, I, I will I will live my life with no regrets. And that was like the last line of the documentary. And I, I like vehemently disagree with that shit. When you mm-hmm. cause so much pain and suffering physically and emotionally on earth, why do you deserve empathy at that point? You don't. You have, you, you have no value added here. Even the woman who said that she was nice to him, you know, she didn't even want to say that he was nice to him because of this, the terrible things that he did. But mm. yeah, that, that line really bugged me. It really think, bugged me. See, I am, I agree with her because I think it's what separates you from the monster within is the empathy, right? That's what they've ultimately lost. And there is a part of them somewhere that is that broken little person. And I, and I think you can have empathy for someone without sympathizing with them and without excusing their actions. See, it's so funny because we all have really different views on this. Like, I am kind of middle ground. I empathize with the reasoning behind the choices that they make at times, aka like being abused, being neglected out of lack of resources, things like that. I do not empathize with the like the act itself being committed by them if that makes any sense i think that's sympathize regardless sympathize means you feel bad for somebody empathize means you can understand what they're going through yeah yeah i can understand maybe why people make the choices that they do and i sympathize with that i don't know where i'm trying to go with this because it's not a fully formed thought but i think that i think that people have like resources available I think okay. I think people have demons, and I think some people are just inherently evil. The end. Okay. Who is an example of someone you think is inherently evil? I don't know. I'm gonna have to again. I'm gonna have to fully form this thought because it's not there, and I can't speak to it eloquently when when I feel like I'm trying to uh, answer or justify the feeling. But yeah, I just don't. I'm pretty middle ground on it. I think. People make choices out of necessity at times, and I can understand that. But I, when you start to make those choices out of pleasure and that, then I don't love that, if that makes any sense. Not really. <laughs> I think you're closer <laughs> to me Stace, than Kristen, Stace. I'm in the middle. Because I um, don't at all... I believe in the death penalty. I believe Bundy was born evil. There was no getting around Bundy. He would kill no matter what. But I could go 
I think, and empathize with Bundy. And because all you have to do is put yourself in their shoes and what they feel, right? They feel victimized in some way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, but once you open that door to hear them out, you do run the risk of becoming emotionally attached, becoming their friend. Like Bill Hagmeyer became friends with Bundy. The FBI Mm -hmm. agent became friends with Bundy. Douglas talks about becoming friends with Kemper. Like, you spend enough time with them, you empathize with them to get information, to have the interview. Right. Or it is it all start. a manipulation tactic? By all them. manipulation. Exactly. Yeah. Like that to girl get what the, they want. The girl in this documentary, V, I don't think. I mean, well, she, she was sent like, out that, I mean, she was obsessed with the Bitteker case, but she yeah. sent mm-hmm. that, like her thing was a, you know, she sent out a form letter to people. She it was, was like, a survey and I would like to look at that survey. Okay. <laughs> if there's but anything that it. person loves is surveys. <laughs> Um, but you know what I mean? And, and she was like, no, I want to know. And she became obsessed with that case. Yeah. But then I don't think she set out to become his friend. I think it started in wanting information. I agree. But I think he manipulated her because I'm not saying he didn't. I'm saying she became friends with him. And like, let's talk about the Bundy case just because it's very prominent and anyone can research it. Bill Hagmeyer went in as a BAU FBI agent to try and find, you know, identify the last Mm -hmm. bodies, the last victims before Bundy was put to death. And he was there talking to him for years, for years. And he spent the last two weeks with, of, you know, with him in of of his life. And Mm -hmm. Bundy called Bill Hagmeyer his best friend. And now whether that's what I would call my best friend or you would, whatever feelings they can have, Bundy said Bill Hagmeyer was his best friend. And Bill Hagmeyer said, Bundy was my friend. We were friends. Like that was our relationship by the end. He shared Doesn't things. deserve a friend. Maybe not, but that doesn't mean he didn't have, and honestly, Bundy's feelings might've been the fact that he was facing death and like, this was the last human connection and his brain was right. like, that's a friend. He's that's a complete psychopath, but mm. that's the thing of like, what I call blue and what you call blue might be completely different. Like what I see as blue and what you see as blue might be different. Mm. What he calls I- a friend, he's saying is his friend, like- Right. I mean, functionally, what they get is someone there when they are. Ooh. Hi, Ray. That was baby Ray? Yeah, I think there's a squirrel. Hi, sweet baby Ray. I think these people who. Okay, so like this one, for example, the Bitteker woman. I want to know what. Because she, she said, I was getting information. And, I'm, and she's like, and we got a lot of information about um, basically how serial killers work or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we got information about where the bodies were located. Well, the bodies have not been located. And what information exactly? But but she is right, is they got him to talk and he hadn't talked to anyone, including the BAU. They couldn't right, but get I'm, him to talk. But I'm saying functionally, what did they get out of that? Okay. What information did you get from him that was helpful in research or in the science? Like they didn't go into that. But functionally, what he got was a fucking friend for five years while he was in prison. You know what I mean? Like he didn't deserve that. And I don't think the information necessarily justifies him getting a fucking friend in his life for the last five years of his life. You know what I mean? Like, like what kind of information did you get out of him? Anyway, I'm just saying, I think he played her. Mm. He got what he wanted. We got minimal in return. And now he has someone that sort of goes around and defends him a little bit after his death. And I think that's fucked up. She does seem to think he's no longer a sociopath, which is not a thing. You're always a sociopath. Yeah, once a sociopath, always a sociopath. (laughs) Speaking of sociopaths, so Norris... (laughs) That was a good transition, right? Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, So... 
Norris was released from prison in 1979, which was just three months after Bitteker's. He moved into his mom's home in Redondo Beach, and then within a month, within one month of his release, he had raped a woman who he, like, simply just left her in a desert. He found employment as an electrician in Compton, and then he, after that, received a letter from Bitteker in, like, late February, where the two met at a hotel and rekindled their plan to kidnap and rape girls. So this was in, like, 1979. How romantic. I know, right? So in order for the pair to abduct the teenage girls, Bitteker decided that they would need this van as opposed to like a normal car. So with the financial stuff from Norris, Bitteker purchased a silver gray, like old school 1977 GMC van. The vehicle didn't have any windows. I mean, typical sketchy ass looking van. It had a huge slide side passenger door. And according to Bitteker, when viewing the sliding door, he realized that Norris could pull up to like a teenage girl really, really close and not have to open the door all the way. So the pair would then nickname this van Murder Mac. Murder Mac, baby. So... From February to June of 1979, they picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. They didn't assault any of these girls in any matter. They used these as practice runs as a way for them merely to like develop ruses to lure girls into the van voluntarily. And then they also would go around and drive and look for secluded locations. In late April, they found an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Really close to me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've been on some of these fire roads. I didn't realize until I was watching the documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's kind of sketchy. Bitteker broke the lock of the gate with a crowbar and replaced it with one that he owned. So their very first victim was Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. She was a 16-year-old girl. Schaefer was last seen leaving a church. It's written in uh, accounts of like all of the events that Bitteker stated that he and Norris first finished constructing like a bed that the pair had installed into the rear of the van and placed like tools below it with like clothes, a cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. And apparently at 11 a.m. during that time, they drove to the beach. They were drinking beer. They were smoking weed, flirting with a bunch of girls, and they really didn't have any sort of set plan. Later that night, they spotted Schaefer walking down the street and then subsequently grabbed her and things happened. She was abducted and raped. Their second victim was Andrea Joy Hall. She was 18 years old. She was hitchhiking. They grabbed her and things happened. Um, I don't want to, I don't love talking a ton about the details because I don't think it's important to feed into that, but you can read all of this if people want to drive further into that. We know that they raped, that they tortured with tools and that they killed. Their next was she the of, ice pick? I think she was. I did write I think that. The down. second one was the ice pick. That's Creeping important. Time. Hold please, hold please, hold yeah, please, yeah. hold please. This was she was the ice pick. So a bit of Kerr and Norris 
they drove to like a third location while they had her and things were happening and Bittaker essentially thrust an ice pick through her ear into her brain and then turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into the other ear stomping on it until the handle broke they then strangled Paul before throwing her body off of a cliff so we can start to see really that things escalate back yeah at that I think point it's important with that like obviously we don't want to gore porn but they are Correct. considered some of the most sadistic killers because of the torture with tools yeah and their goal was suffering and many of the women would either you know go into shock or would try to not scream or whatever right like whatever their fight or flight was telling them and they got off on the screams. That's what Correct. they wanted. That was their goal. Murder was not necessarily the goal. It was just the result. And Correct. he would even, Bitteker would record them and the screams and would like go around listening to it as like his radio mm. as he was like driving around. Correct. Like, that's just what they wanted. Horrible, so, awful, yeah. awful things that they well, we, did. Yeah. So that's what people, listeners should keep in mind is in, it's an insane and intense amount of torture. Correct. So next was Jackie Doris Gillum and Jacqueline Lean Lamp. They had Shirley Lynette Ledford. Oh, Jacqueline. There's Jackie and Jacqueline. Jacqueline was 13 years old. So they- I think they, Jacqueline was 15 or was Jackie the 15? Ja so Lamp was- Jacqueline. Was 13. Jacqueline Lee Lamp was 13. Jackie Doris Gilliam was 15. And then, like, they really did try to get someone of every age. Shirley yeah. Lynette Ledford was 16. They wanted every teen year. Exactly. So 13 through 19 is what they wanted. Exactly. Just some really horrible, awful, terrible things. Extensive blunt force traumas to their faces, heads, breasts so much horrible terrible things that they would do with pliers just really like puncturing fingers and things like that it was just awful yeah. what they did it was absolutely terrible and like veronica said it wasn't their intent wasn't to kill their intent was to rape and torture yeah. killing was an effect of said crimes that they yeah. did well, it sounded like they didn't want to get caught. Yeah, exactly. and obviously a better way to not leave living with victims. And we saw in Criminal Minds in the torture tape they kept going through. And uh, like Norris and Bitteker didn't send these to the families. They just mm -hmm. did record what was happening. But we saw one of the unsubs using pliers. Mm -hmm. Like this, you know, it's very mm -hmm. much the toolbox yeah. killers. See, and that guy, does the real the real guy, Bitteker, did not deserve a friend. I, I don't care. Fair. <laughs> like, Absolutely. But you can also not deserve a friend and other people can still have empathy for people. Like, I mean, outside of that, I suppose, but keep your empathy away from them so they don't know about it. They don't deserve <laughs> empathy. Well, fuck that. When you were very young, you learned that the actions of yours physically hurts others, right? Like that's something you learn right off the bat. You know what hurt feels like. You know what pain feels like. And if you inflict that in such high levels on other people, nah, no value added to this world. Mm -hmm. You get nothing from me. Nothing. Nothing. So in 1979, Norris became reacquainted with an old friend, Joseph Jackson. He had been incarcerated with him at CMC. Norris confided in Jackson about his and Bittaker's exploits over the past 
five months and included graphic details of the murder of Shelley Ledford, who was the only victim's body that had been found at this time. Norris also divulged to Jackson that in addition to the five murders he and Bittaker had committed, there had been three additional incidences which him and Bittaker had abducted or attempted to abduct young women who either escaped or in one instance they raped her but ended up releasing them. Upon hearing Norris's confessions, Jackson consulted his attorney who advised him to turn him over to authorities. And then him and his attorney informed the LAPD who in turn relayed the two men to the Hermosa Beach police. A Hermosa Beach police detective, Mr. Bynum, was assigned to investigate his claims as Norris's confessions to the murders. They took statements, things happened, and essentially they were arrested. I think one part in the documentary that was really interesting was that, didn't Bitter, how did he get a heads up that things were happening, V? Do you remember? Because he had time to like clean the van. Yeah, um, the cops came to the motel and he mm-hmm. just stepped out while they like, I think searched his room and he cleaned up the van During while they time? were, <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. Cause it, he anyway, also he cleaned- kept it neat, mm-hmm. yeah, like put together. So he just like pulled out their shit, their tools and yeah. shit. So yeah. an interesting part of this, of Bitteker being fucking dumb. He's supposed to be smart, but this was fucking dumb. And I like pointing out the dumb things that they do because he cleaned the van, but then he left one of the tapes in the tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. in the tape mm-hmm. decks. Yeah, that's we have why we have one of the yeah. on tape. And that was really the nail in the coffin for him because, I mean, some of the things he said, how he was defending himself, there was no defending that tape. There was no defending No, that. yeah, it was, was very active much. active participant yeah. in the murder and torture of this. Norris did it, Norris did it, and then they yep. played the tape. And uh-huh. they had to take a break from court because the jury was crying and sobbing and the court reporter had to step out and like got sick. And they in no way play any part of the tape. I don't think you could probably find the tape. I think the FBI has it mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. it where it dies because everyone who has listened to it, like yeah. the there's a, a BAU woman who I think was retired BAU in the documentary. I liked her. She was Ooh, great. I liked her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's smart. She's like, he's a sociopath. He's, yeah. He didn't change. He's not nice. Right. He's a sociopath, which is absolutely true. Yeah. But she was like, no one should have to hear that. And they had to print out a transcript mm-hmm. of the tape. And while they're playing it, Bitteker was just reading along to it. And I'm like, yeah, he was getting off to it. That's yeah. his whole thing. And mm-hmm. the jury got to see that. Yeah. Um, but they don't reproduce it for the documentary. That's not, no yep. one should get to hear that. Yeah. Um, but ev- they have the prosecutor. They have, you know, everyone is like, it's the most horrible thing right. I've ever heard. And I still have nightmares from it. Yeah. yeah. The prosecutor said something interesting about that case because, you know, they got the death penalty. It didn't end up happening. But he said, if these people don't qualify for the death penalty, then who would? Who does? Like, who does? Right. So how they were able to finally connect and arrest the two, there was a report of a woman who had been sprayed in the face with mace who had escaped, essentially, or had been released, sorry. And the police went back and, you know, caught up with her, investigated her, showed her a few mugshots, and she was so clearly able to identify the two, Bittaker and Norris, that they picked them up without like hesitation from that like it was so very clear to her that they were them so they were able to link the two to the rape of this woman and put them under surveillance within a few days of 
of observing them. They had caught Norris dealing marijuana and was able to arrest them. It is interesting, though, that although this same woman, her name was Robin Robeck, had identified the mugshots of them, she was actually unable to positively ID them in a police lineup. Nonetheless, they had observed Norris dealing with the marijuana, and Bitteker had been in possession of drugs at the time of his arrest. Both were held on charges of their parole violation. They searched Bitteker's apartment, revealed several Polaroid photographs depicting his first few victims, both of whom had been reported missing earlier that same year, and they ended up discovering the sledgehammer, a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies, a jar of Vaseline, two necklaces, later confirmed to belonging to the two victims, tape recording of young women screaming and repeatedly begging for mercy, being tortured and sexually abused, and then essentially took all of this evidence and arrested both of them because of it and charged them. Now... In 1979. It's just crazy to me how fast all of this happened, too. Yeah, it is a very short timeline. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So at this point, Norris was beginning to display visible signs of stress. And then they began, like, questioning him initially in the, like, relation to the rape of Robin, who had been sprayed with the mace, who had identified them. Statements were given by Jackson as well. Uh, Essentially, initially, Norris denied any involvement in the murders, the rapes, or disappearances. However, when he was confronted with the evidence that the investigators had compiled, he finally began to confess. Although he did attempt to portray Bitteker as being more culpable in Oh God, that's such a good word. Culpable in all of the murders than himself. Essentially trying to, like Kristen had said earlier, pin him as the submissive. The, like, okay. Yes. As the submissive or as the dominant? No. Uh, he tried to say that he was afraid of Bitteker. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, there we go. I was like, he yeah, was it, trying to portray himself as the submissive. Because okay. he said he went along with some of the murders because he was, or the murders, all of them, because he was afraid of Bitteker, right? I think Correct. Yeah, which like... Norris could have squashed Bitteker at yeah, any point the, in time. The, the active participation in so many ways. Yes. Like, get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Just get out of here. Correct. So details came out according to Norris. The level of brutality that Bitteker had exhibited toward their victims had increased on each occasion that they lured a girl into the van. Their final victim was Ledford. <laughs> this is really terrible. Ledford had essentially pleaded to be killed at that point. So just again to like further into the terrible brutality of these crimes. During this time, Norris agreed to return to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the bodies of the girls who were abducted and murdered and that he had confessed to assisting in. In each instance, Norris brought like detectives to the area where he and Bitteker had disposed of the bodies, despite... All of the extensive searches of the areas where he stated the bodies were, they were never found. So on February 9th, 1980, skeletalized, again, another good word, um, bodies of Lamp and Gilliam were eventually found at the bottom of the canyon alongside a dry riverbed. The bodies were scattered over an area measuring hundreds of feet in diameter and 
bringing this back, the ice pick that was used with Gilliam was found still lodged in their skull. The skull of Lamp bore multiple indentations, evidence of numerous hammer blows. Norris had stated that he inflicted. They were all there. So in February of 1980, Norris and Bittaker were finally formally charged with the murders of the five girls. At the arraignment, Bittaker was denied bail. Norris's bail was set at $10,000. And within one month of his being charged of the murder, Norris had accepted a plea bargain, which he would testify against Bittaker in return for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty against him. Norris pled guilty to the four counts of first-degree murder, second-degree murder, all of that. In return, he had pled guilty to testify against Bittaker, like I just mentioned, no death penalty. Prior to this sentencing, though, Norris was reviewed by a probation officer who had testified at the sentence that Norris had again accused Bittaker of the actual torture of their victims, essentially, again, stating that he was just terrified for his life, which is why he just kind of went along with this so there we are i believe it in april finally bittaker was arraigned on 29 charges total and those all included like kidnapping rape sodomy murder with various multiple like conspiracy charges criminal conspiracy charges possessions uh, all of this stuff the charges of rape for Robin, who had identified them, would later be dropped because of lack of physical evidence, as well as Robin was unable to identify her attackers in a lineup when confronted in person. So during his sentencing, Bittaker was completely silent, refused to answer any questions, and didn't enter his plea. So the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. So this went to trial. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about it before, too, like with uh, psychopaths, either mm-hmm. they will tell you everything or they will tell you absolutely nothing. And Bitteker was an absolutely nothing. Yeah. Because for some reason, he was always trying to, even until the end in that documentary, he wanted people to think he wasn't the monster that he was. Yes. Which is weird, because mm-hmm. I thought he would have drifted towards the notoriety of it and wanted people to think he was the monster. Yeah. And mean to get that fame, but he still, even at the end, was like trying to yeah. play even, down They never want to believe their monsters. And you think it's that or you think it's the, the perception? Like they want to control the narrative? Uh, Maybe a little he, bit of both in some cases. In some cases, yeah. I mean, I think they want to justify things to themselves, which is also why mm-hmm. necrophilia and cannibalism are hidden so intensely with mm-hmm. serial killers. Because Bundy had necrophilic acts, there are a lot of people who ate bodies that you know everyone thinks just Dahmer but Mm -hmm. there's actually quite a few and there's quite a few and their thing is like I'll say everything just don't tell people I had sex with the dead body don't tell people I ate people because Mm -hmm. there's no justification to even themselves at that point I think I think they want to control the narrative in their own brain to themselves more so than what other people think of them. They don't care what other people think of them. Like psychopaths don't. Right. But no one Mm. wants to believe themselves the villain. Right. So before I kind of move on from this, I did want to point out like Bittaker's testimony. So Bittaker testified on his own behalf, denied any knowledge in the abduction and murder of Schaefer, one of the victims, and claimed that he had paid another victim, Hall, to pose for Polaroid photographs 
depicting her and they did find these photographs at the Burbank motel that they were staying at. He claimed that Hall also agreed to like sex as well, being paid for sex. And then he claimed that Norris had walked Hall into the San Gabriel Mountains before he returned alone and informed Bitteker that he had told Hall to find her own way home so that it was a case of she got lost in the mountains. Mm-hmm. He also had a similar explanation as to the double murder of Lamp and Gilliam and claimed that, again, they accepted money for sex and that he walked them into the mountains and left them to be. So, yeah, he tried to do a lot of like, they agreed to this. This was yeah, pillow exactly. talk. This and I was like, what are you talking but, about? Yeah, and he said they were acting. Yeah. I asked them to act this way. Okay, so Stace, you said that they had found Jacqueline Gilliam and yeah. they had found Jacqueline when, Lamp. Yeah. When did they find Shirley Ledford? Ledford was in, they left Ledford in the yard of someone. They did, yes. So they found three out of the five. The other yeah. two are the locations that they gave that forensic psychologist in the documentary, but they haven't found those bodies yet. Gotcha, gotcha. So I'm like, what was the fucking point is what I'm saying. If you being friends with this motherfucker, you didn't get anything. But I guess it's not for me to decide if the family sink information was enough, then, you know. Yeah, I mean, he did finally admit to it, I think, was because the sister was like, we could bring her home, like finally put it Mm -hmm. to rest because we had held out hope. Mm -hmm. So in February of 1981 after deliberating for three days the jury found Bittaker guilty of five counts of first-degree murder one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder five charges of kidnapping nine charges of rape two charges of forcible oral copulation one charge of sodomy and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm i'm surprised it took them three days me too well yeah Correct. But the sentencing didn't take that long. The sentencing did not. Five minutes. The judge uh, is like, death. (laughs) It took 90 minutes. Oh, God. 90 minutes before they returned with their verdict that Bittaker should be sentenced to death for those charges. Do you think they just like go into the back and they're like, how long do you think we should raise just to make it look like we care? Yeah. Yeah. Just to make it look like we talked. 90, 90 minutes? Okay. Pop in a yep. movie. <laughs> right. Let's, let's watch. <laughs> this asshole's getting the chair. Yeah, yeah we all oh, know no. what we're doing here. It wasn't even the chair. It was the gas chamber at yeah, that point yeah. in California, which I was shocked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in accordance with the jury verdict, Bitteker was formally sentenced to death in March. In the event that the sentence imposed was ever reverted to life imprisonment, the judge at the time imposed an alternative sentence of 199 years and four months to take immediate effect. (laughs) And And it was commuted. Uh, California has many times reverted to no death penalty. Yeah. So, here we go. Dies. What a terrible. Prison. I mean, this is yeah. this is one so heavy. It is. And there's so much. Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. Okay. So, 
Don't worry. So he died. We're not, th- we're not there yet. So, okay. So Bittaker gave several death row interviews following his conviction. He never expressed any remorse for his crimes. He repeatedly stated that the only remorse he ever felt had been for the fact that he and Norris were arrested, thus ruining his own life. He corresponded with numerous individuals, like we did, responded to letters with the nickname Pliers Bittaker in reference to one of the exactly while incarcerated though he filed 40 like frivolous lawsuits over the issues as like a broken cookie and a crushed sandwich by the prison cafeteria cited examples as being subject to cruel and unusual punishment like just ridiculous things that he was throwing out there despite the fact that Bittaker considered his life to have been a wasted one and claiming he always wished he could go back and not do it having not hurt so many people he also marveled at the fact that he and norris had little in common before their acquaintance at cmc and added that they had one hell of a lot in common now to me that meant that oh this man knew that i could manipulate norris in some sort of way or feed into it his simplicity and was able to get him on my side and do the things that i wanted i don't think that he did it out of like violence or threat of his life like norris stated but there we go bitaker himself died while incarcerated at san quentin in 2019 at the time he was 79 years old his death was reported as being due to natural causes norris was incarcerated at richard donovan correctional facility and he died also while imprisoned in 2020 at the age of 72 yeah, they, they talk died, about it what, two months apart. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the documentary, they talk about how they're like an old married couple, married that couple can't live without each other. Yeah, they have a broken heart. Yeah, the rom com we didn't know we needed exactly, yeah. and he never, never, ever, ever ceased on the fact that the reason why he did it was because he was out of fear of Bitaker. He had always claimed that. Well, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, because his plea deal hinged on that. Yes, and everyone sitting on death. Everyone sitting on death row is innocent. So everyone in jail is innocent compared to them. Gross! Fuck them. Glad they're dead. Exactly. Well, Krista, when we started this whole thing, and I asked you what case you definitely wanted, you said toolbox killers. Why? I mean, this one is. There's nothing else like it that I've heard. This one sticks sticks with you with how awful. So the sadism for you. Yeah, and I think the torture part, the fact that that was the part that they found enjoyment in. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, I have, there's a mosquito. Oh, did I get him? This okay. was a fun one, guys. What a, yeah, what a feel good. Good job, gang. Good job, gang. Oof. Got through good it. Good job. We did it. it. This one was I, exhausting. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't have to do it, though, so. It was exhausting. <laughs> I was like, That's how go. I felt during Fred and Rosemary. Yeah. Fair. <sighs> Somehow like worse. slogging through it. Pair. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Well, well. Like, subscribe, download. I know. Thanks for uh, coming on, Chris. And we'll see yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. I love you so much. We'll see yeah. you later in the season for peer review. I'll and, be there. Um, <laughs> Another uplifting segment, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. <laughs> um, everyone join us next week for another episode of Criminal Giants. Woo!
Thank you.